Anyway, it's a, a joy to be with you again this morning, and I'm very thankful that we're here in the presence of the Lord. So if you haven't been worshiping already, I want you to enjoy the presence of the Lord. I want you to be worshiping as we open our hearts to the Word, to really practice His presence, if you will. So when you're listening to the sermon, listen for how the Lord is speaking to your heart. Hear what He has to you know, say to your heart. That's part of what the Holy Spirit does is he, he enlightens our hearts with the word as it's being preached or when we, when we read it. So that's what we want to hear. God is real. He wants to speak to us. He speaks to us primarily through his word. And so let's enjoy that, okay? Okay, my sermon uh, text this morning is Philippians 3, 1 through 3. I've entitled it Rejoice in the Lord Jesus. That's actually part of that uh, passage. And as we have already said, Philippians theme, one of the major themes going through Philippians is the idea of joy or rejoicing. And so as we encounter this world and we so often are struggling or we're depressed or just discouraged, you know, we need to get our minds back onto our Lord who gives us hope. And so as we do that, it's like we're taking our, our minds off of ourselves like we sang in our first song here this morning and, we, and our self dies and, and the joy and rejoicing and, and the presence of, of our Lord in our lives increases and, and all of a sudden we have hope that we can get through whatever that struggle is. That the presence of the Lord will give us the grace that we need to get through it. Isn't that wonderful? That's glorious. So it's not about what I'm doing, it's about what Christ is doing in me and how he's shedding that grace in my heart. And I always know, according to Romans 5, that his grace is greater than my sin. The presence of the Holy Spirit will overcome that sin nature bit by bit throughout my life. And so we rejoice in that because we know where it's all going to wind up, in his presence forever as his people. So where we find the Philippian church this morning in chapter 3 that they're facing a strong challenge from Judaizers or Jewish teachers who have come from Jerusalem who oppose the gospel of grace. They're following Paul around to most of the churches and trying to destroy this gospel that he's been preaching. And so they'd followed Paul to Philippi and they were telling the Philippian church that they must be circumcised in order to be saved. And of course, that was horrible. Paul was not happy with these false teachers. And he was uh, aware of what they were trying to do. They were trying to get them to turn away from the gospel, return to Judaism, and to a works-based salvation. We're supposed to work out our own salvation, right? So that's what Judaism was. And so he uses harsh language towards these men who are doing this as he was talking to the Philippians. He strongly warned them. He says, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. Wow. So Paul had strong opinions about those who opposed the gospel. So what did Paul say then to the Philippians in response to what these evil men were, do were doing? What did he say to the Philippians particularly? How should they respond to that? Well, he gives them a command. This isn't a suggestion. This is a command. He says, I want you to rejoice in the Lord Jesus, exclamation point. 
I want you to stop thinking about the negative stuff and the false teaching that's going on. And I want you to put your hope central right onto the person of Jesus Christ. I want you to rejoice in Jesus and what he's done. So that's very clear. And so what's he telling them when he says rejoice in the Lord Jesus? He's saying, I want you to rejoice in Jesus alone, only Jesus, because Jesus is the one that ushered in the gospel of grace. He's the one that paid the price to have the gospel of grace take place. It all came around what he did on the cross and how forgiveness of sins and different things took place as we see what he did in his covenant of works. So Jesus is the one that fulfilled the covenant of works. Every single word that was written down in the law of God, then he perfectly obeyed that. So he earned the salvation and then he gave that to us. He was righteous and so he gave his righteousness to us. And he's the only one that was ever capable of doing that. He was the only one ever born without a sin nature. All the rest of us have been born with sin natures. We're incapable of not sinning. So Paul's, his heart's aching for the Philippians because they're hearing these things and he's concerned, you know, whether or not they'll return to this, this type of, of earning their own salvation, a works-oriented kind of thing. And, and we see that in ourselves at times. You know, it's, it's like, okay, if I just show up to, to church every Sunday, then I can check that box, I've pleased God. But God's already pleased with you. Jesus has already died for you. Jesus is in heaven already and you're in Christ. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing increased that's gonna happen in terms of your salvation because Jesus has already done it. The reason he wants you in church every Sunday is to worship him. Not because he wants the worship, because we need to worship. We need to hear the word of God together. We need to be encouraged by one another. We need to be uplifted and, and challenged as the Holy Spirit does its work. And so then we learn more and more day by day that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind and to love our neighbors ourselves. So we need to worship. This is the same thing that happened when the Lord led the, Egypt, the Israelites out of Egypt. What was the reason that they were to go out into the, cross the Red Sea and go out into the, into the desert? So that they might worship me, the Lord said. Well, he didn't need the worship and he didn't respond to their cries because he needed somebody to worship him. It's because they needed to worship him. And we need to worship him today. And so one of the things we're going to look at is uh, circumcision. And that's not always a comfortable thing to be talking about. But we're going to be seeing how it applies here to what Paul is saying. And, and so we're also going to get more detail of why Paul commanded them to worship and rejoice in the Lord Jesus so get ready to rejoice in the Lord Jesus this morning. Please stand for the reading of the word. Philippians 3, 1 through 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. 
to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. This is the Word of God. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your presence here and thank you that uh, even though I'm giving one sermon, uh, everybody who's here is hearing something a little bit different. So all these sermons are going into our hearts as, as needed by the power and illuminating of your spirit in our hearts with the word of God. So we thank you for that. Help us to pay attention to what you're saying to us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Our first point this morning is rejoice in our Lord Jesus who fulfilled the covenant of grace. So Paul's not saying just mindlessly rejoice in the Lord, you know, and I'm just supposed to automatically just rejoice. There's reason and purpose and direction in this. And so as he's saying rejoice in the Lord, it's with specific things in mind. And, and the first thing that comes to mind are two chapters out of the Old Testament. Genesis 15, which you heard read earlier, and also Genesis 17. So he was thinking about how Jesus fulfilled man's side of the covenant of grace. And that's what we saw in chapter 15. So he was thinking about how Jesus had humbled himself by shedding his glory, taking on human form. How Jesus had perfectly obeyed the word of God. How he had chosen to die in their place and suffer the wrath of God in their place as well for their sins. How he'd risen from the dead. How, and he was thinking because Jesus had done these things, all of their sins had been forgiven. And so same thing for us, all of our sins have been forgiven and that nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God. That's the promise, Paul writes about that later, right? In Romans. So Paul, told them to rejoice in the Lord Jesus because of all these different things that had already happened to them, things that he had taught them when he had been in Philippi. And so these things were fulfilled then in the covenant of grace that was done with Abraham. And so it's important in Genesis 15 then that we understand more of what took place because it was impossible for man to uphold man's side of the covenant with God then we see that the Abrahamic covenant of God, covenant of grace, excuse me, that Jesus had to come. Jesus had to shed his glory. Jesus had to come and participate at just the right time when God sent him. And then he went onto the cross and it was there that he upheld the projected man's side of the covenant of grace. The famous theologian R.C. Sproul uh, had, said, had this to say at one time. He said, if he were stranded on a desert island and he could only pick one chapter out of the Bible that he could have, he would pick Genesis 15 because of the covenant of grace. Isn't that interesting? So we need to deeply appreciate what we are taught here about the covenant of grace because God chose sovereignly to make this covenant with Abraham. Abraham was asleep. If you remember what chapter 15 said, 
He was asleep as this covenant of grace with him was unfolding. And so God made it a permanent and unbreakable covenant of grace. It was something that had to take place because God is the one that made it. And of course, with the view of the sending his son, who would then uphold man's side. So we need to understand that we are work, uh, walking in a covenant of grace every day. This is not just on Sunday mornings. This is not just a one-time thing. Every single day, the whole Bible is organized from beginning to end through a covenant of grace. It's the story of redemption. It's the coming of Jesus and what he's done. It leads to a beautiful end. It's secure for us because Jesus is already in heaven. This isn't any more something that's going to happen. It already has happened. And so now the end of the story has to take place when Christ returns. Well, isn't that exciting? That means until he returns, I'm going to mess up day by day. You're going to mess up day by day. We're going to sin. But it's never, ever going to sacrifice this covenant of grace because it's a grace covenant. We are secure in that. And so as we see that, as we read the, the Bible through the lens of that covenant of grace, all kinds of things begin to make sense. You begin to tie things together. Old Testament patterns are now projected into the New Testament. Paul quotes the Old Testament a lot. That's why. We've got one book. And there are themes and things roll through it. And so we understand these more and more as we get to know these things better and better. And so it's by grace then that Christ came. And so we're blessed through what happened as the Abrahamic covenant came into place. Genesis 15, 6 says, it was Abraham's faith in God's promise that was credited to him for righteousness. Same thing has happened to us. As you said here this morning, God has given you his righteousness. Jesus' righteousness is yours. Not because you've earned it, because he's assigned it or imputed it to you. I mean, yes, I want to walk through each day like that, knowing that. And so when I get into difficult situations, things that are hard, I'm looking for the grace of God. I'm looking for the presence of God as I walk through those difficult times. And yet with a hope of knowing I'm going to get through them. And that there must be rhyme and reason, even though I may not understand it, but that there's God working in the midst of this for my growth and my maturity and growth in Christ-likeness. So I've got hope in the middle of trial and discouragement. So I'm not to just get wrapped up in all that discouragement. I need to look up. I need to look at Christ who wants to work in my heart. So it's vitally important that we understand this covenant of grace. So we're secure and we know that Jesus is coming back for us. That's glorious and wonderful. It's exciting. And so the goal of the covenant of grace, which is the gathering and sanctifying of the covenant people of God in heaven, is shown to us in Revelation chapter 7, 9, and 10. You can actually read down through 14, but I'm just going to read these two verses. It says, after this, John looked, and behold, a great number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
Wow, doesn't belong to us. We don't have to earn it. We can't earn it. It's because of what Jesus has done, the lamb, and God sending the lamb. And guess what? This is a future vision, right, that, that John is, is giving us. We're going to be amongst that group. Everyone in here who's a Christian will be there saying those same words. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Yes, that's what we're going to be rejoicing and praising God for. Yeah, we're going to be joining in on that. And the covenant of grace finds its fullest expression in these words from Revelation 21, verse 3. They will be God's people, and God himself will be with them as their God. We are God's people now by grace, and we'll be with God. And we'll be confessing that and praising God in his presence after Christ returns and we join him in heaven forever and ever and ever and so we are to rejoice in the Lord for fulfilling this covenant of grace. The Lord has done that. He's done something that's impossible for me to do in my own strength and wisdom and understanding. Only he could do that. And I need to be constantly reminded of that because so quickly my heart wanders and I forget these things. And my guess is most of you do too. That's why he calls us in here to worship him once every seven days. We need that. We need to keep our compass straight for heaven and remembering this covenant of grace that we're walking in. We need to rejoice in the Lord Jesus because 2,000 years ago, he fulfilled the covenant of grace. He came and took our place, went to the cross and suffered for our sins to rejoicing in that this morning. I hope this begins to lift your hearts. Just think of what you've received, what you've got now. This is something that is overwhelming and beautiful and wonderful. And if we're not rejoicing, it's because we're not focusing on it. We're focusing on the things of this world. We're focusing on these other issues that are going on that a lot of times bring us down. They don't build us up. So when we're struggling, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord Jesus. Focus up. Sometimes you're going to have to do that out of duty. Sometimes you're not going to feel like that's what you want to do because you are discouraged. You are down. But this is the answer. Even if you're feeling like that, don't let your emotions rule you at that point in time. Command your soul. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord Jesus. I'm going to get my focus on the blessing and the future that I have. And that he's going to be with me through this trial right now. His grace is sufficient for me. And so, if you're having a hard time with that, ask somebody else to help you. Look, I'm really struggling in this particular problem I'm having. I need, I need help. I need you to pray for me that I'll get my eyes on the Lord. It's a picture of Moses back in Exodus 17. The battle's going on down in the valley between the Israelites and the foreign armies. And Moses got his staff up there and he's holding it up like this. And over time, that 
weakness in his arms. He can't hold it up in his own strength. So Aaron and her, H-U-R, two men come beside him. And what do they do? They hold his arms up. They bring a stone for him to sit on. And so we're to do this together. We need each other's help as we try to rejoice in the Lord, not get weighed down in our own sin nature with negativity and just feeling sorry for ourselves. Now let's look at our second point. What did Paul mean when he said, we are the circumcision? He was saying, we are the true children of Abraham. We are the covenant people of God. That's what originally marked Abraham and his people that worked for him as well as his family. That was the first people of God. We are in union with Christ. And because we're in union with the Lord Jesus by grace, then we should rejoice. We should rejoice. And Paul is reminding them that Jesus was the definitive offspring of Abraham. Because the promise was made to Abraham and his offspring. Well, that's an interesting thing. So we see in Galatians 3.16 what God actually meant. Paul interprets this. He says, now the promises of God were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Does not say and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So everything else happens because we're in Christ. Christ has done it, but we share in these things. We rejoice in these things because we're in Christ. As we see, everything that Jesus has received, we share in that. That's glorious and wonderful. Hopefully it lifts our spirits on a daily basis. And so because we're in Christ, these promises that were made to Abraham and to Christ are ours as well. God doesn't hold back. So why did Paul mention circumcision? He was referring back to Genesis 17, 1 through 14. And I encourage you to go back and read that sometime if you haven't read it yet. And what you'll see is that God established a covenant of circumcision. And so it's important to understand that. So God commanded Abraham to circumcise all the babies, eight days old, and also all the males, both in his family, direct family, and also the people who were working for him, all those in his household, Israelite and and foreigner. And so this was the representation then of the sign and seal of the covenant of grace. And if you read through that passage, you'll see the covenant language that's in there. So this idea of covenant then is so important for us to understand and to grasp and be encouraged by. And so the eternal covenant of grace is something that God placed a high priority on, including the children in his covenant of grace. And so we see that entire households then are brought in and the sign and seal of the covenant of circumcision in the Old Testament. That's God's pattern. That's the way he worked. So all the people that are in that group and that covenant family then are included. Didn't leave anybody out. Didn't leave the babies out. They're all part of that same covenant community. And so the reason that God had this covenant of circumcision is so that they would be reminded every time a baby or an adult, doesn't matter, is circumcised, then they're reminded 
of this covenant of grace that they're walking in. They need to be remembering so they're not prone to wander away from him. And so it reminded the entire covenant community every time they saw a circumcision of this covenant of grace they're walking in. So that's important for us to know that. And it's important to us. And so it also points forward to the coming of Christ as it was initiated. And so, you know, example is when the Israelites entered the promised land after 40 years in the desert. Why were they out in the desert? Because of rebellion in their heart. They'd been told to go out and worship God, but they refused. Then they finally went, but it was too late. So they're out there wandering around for 40 years, God faithfully administering to their every need, teaching them to have faith in him and not in themselves. And so what's the first thing that God commands them to do as they begin to enter the promised land? He circumcised everybody. See, a lot of that hadn't been done during the, the wanderings. So why is that important? It's because the main question that's in the hearts of the Israelites as they've been wandering around because they rebelled against God is, is what? What would you be thinking if you've just been sent out into the desert for 40 years because you rebelled? Well, all these beautiful promises that have been made by God would be, well, is God going to still accept me? It's like Paul being caught on the Damascus Road, destroying the church. Is God still going to love him? So this act of circumcision says, yes, the covenant of grace is still working. I still love you. It's impossible for you to come out from underneath my grace. The promises are still in place and they will be until Christ comes back. What a beautiful thing this is. So this is why we rejoice in the Lord. Because we have seasons in our life where we're rebelling against the Lord too, the best of us. So despite their rebellion and wandering in the desert for 40 years, God takes them back. And he said, my covenant of grace, my covenant of circumcision are still in place. They're forever. They're eternal. And they're eternal for us this morning. God still loved them. He wasn't shocked by their behavior. He's drawing them back to himself. And that's true of you. God's going to continue in you, with you, through all that this life has to offer, offer until you get to be with him. He will not reject you because we have the covenant to promise us that. Jesus has fulfilled that. It's done. So when Jesus fulfilled man's side of the covenant of grace by shedding his blood on the cross, the sign and seal of the covenant of, God, of grace changed. So it was no longer circumcision became baptism. In Galatians 3.26, it says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That's the reference right back to Genesis 15. Still in place. 
Except Jesus, instead of pointing towards Jesus, now we're looking back. Jesus has done it. And now we just wait for him to come back and finish what he started. Beautiful. Joyous. I hope that excites you this morning. Because if you're aware of your own sin, then this is the kind of stuff you want to hear. (laughs) And so... The sacrament of baptism focuses on the covenant of grace as well that God made with Abraham. We're entire families. We're included in the covenant of grace. Not just the individuals being circumcised or baptized. It's a family thing. So what's true back in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 is still the pattern is still true in the New Testament. There's nothing in the scriptures that say that that's changed. This is how God relates to his covenant people. And so as we think about the sacrament of baptism, it has two purposes. One most of us are familiar with. It's the entry grate into the church, into the local church. That's how people are received into the local body and accepted into the bosom of the local church. They're acknowledged as covenant children of God, whether you're a baby or whether you're an adult, doesn't matter. And so this is a reflection back of what happened in the covenant of circumcision as well. So baptism is the entry gate into the local church. For infants, the congregation publicly pledges to love and help raise the covenant child because it's part of the local body. But here's the second one. You know, so often we think that baptism of babies is just, oh, how cute is that baby? And your focus gets on the baby, and it's like, oh, that's so nice. And that's okay. There's nothing particularly wrong with that. But there's a second aspect that's far more important than that. And that's what we need to be thinking about as the congregation when we see baptisms take place, whether it's a baby or whether it's an adult. The sacrament of baptism is meant to strengthen and deepen your faith. The idea then is for you as you watch that is to rehearse and to remember what's happened to you. That you're in the covenant of grace. It's a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. So we're not just watching something that's happening up front. We're engaging and saying, wow, this is what God has done for me. Thank you, God. I worship you. I adore you because of this amazing covenant of grace that I'm walking in. And I need to be refreshed in that. I need to remember that. I need to walk in that. I need to take it and own it. So it causes the congregation to remember and rejoice when you watch a baptism. Like I say, so often that's not what we're thinking about. We're thinking about, oh, there's a baby that's being baptized, or there's an adult that's being baptized. No, God wants you, in, just like it was in the Old Testament, to be reminded when a baby was circumcised, then the whole community rejoiced in the covenant of grace. And that's what we need to do, and we rejoice in that, and it strengthens us, and it deepens our faith. God is still going to love me, regardless of whatever I'm facing at this moment in my life. And it also helps us to remember that Christ is coming back. So we see that 
person being baptized, Christ is coming back. So you remember what God has done, you remember what God is doing, and you remember what he's going to do. Similar to what happens when we have communion, like we will later in the service. All three aspects are there in that communion. And we are to be thinking about this grace that we're walking in. Until baptism, because of that, is not to be privately performed. It's not to be done in somebody's house. It's to be done in the presence of the congregation because of these reasons. It's not just about the individual, it's about the whole congregation. And as Paul wrote in chapter 1, verse 6 of Philippians, he says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's the covenant of grace. That's what I'm walking in, that's what I'm sure of. This is going to take place regardless of my behavior. Jesus is accomplishing this through the power of his spirit, not me. So rejoice in the Lord Jesus this morning. Now I want to take a moment to address the terminology of the old covenant and the new covenant, which can be confusing at times. People ask me that. <laughs> so the old covenant return, it refers to the covenant of works, earning your salvation. And so that's not what we're doing here. We're looking at the new covenant which is a covenant of grace. So I don't earn my salvation. Jesus has earned it for me in the new covenant. This is what happened at the cross, right? So wow, this grace is fabulous and wonderful. So only Jesus could do that. Only Jesus, Jesus alone. So the purpose of the law was to convict the Israelites of their sin so they would repent and turn to God and the covenant of grace and look forward to the Messiah. Of course, they didn't have that idea. They thought the Messiah was going to come and rule the world and rule the nations, and you know, they had a confused view of that. But the new covenant that we first run across in Jeremiah 31 says that there's going to be a new covenant. And so that's the fulfillment of the original covenant of grace by Jesus. It didn't replace the original covenant of grace. It's just a continuation of the overall plan of the covenant of grace from the beginning before the foundation of the earth, before it was even created amongst the Trinity, all the way through until Christ comes back and we're safely in the presence of our Lord and our Savior. So all these different things are different aspects of that overall overriding covenant of grace. And that's beautiful and it's wonderful. And that leads us to our third point, Beware of those who insist on circumcising people for salvation. So the teaching of the men who opposed the gospel of grace is revealed in Acts 15.1. It says, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It works. You've got to do something in order to be saved. You don't have to do anything to be saved. Even the gift of faith has been given to you in order that you might believe. He is the one, as we saw before, that works in us to desire and to do his works. We see in Ephesians 2.10 that these works have been prepared for us beforehand to do. So all these beautiful things are got nothing to do with my works. And so these men 
Paul strongly warns that they are those who want you to return back to earning your own salvation. You can't do that. It's impossible for you to do that. The whole Old Testament closes with the fact you can't do that. Jesus had to come. Nobody had earned their own salvation in the entire Old Testament. Not David, not Moses, not Noah, no one. Only Jesus could do that. They are the dogs, he says, the evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh. Not sure what degree of anger, but I'm sure it was strong opposition to that, he warns them. And that brings us to our fourth point. Rejoice in the joy of your salvation. Rejoice in this covenant of grace in which you walk. Rejoice in the Lord Jesus. Rejoice in the amazing covenant of grace until Jesus returns every single day. Get your mind on the Lord as best you can every morning and rejoice in your salvation. Delight in the Lord. Delight in what he's doing in you and through you. Rejoice in what Jesus has done for you and will continue to do for you. Rejoice that you're in union with Jesus. Rejoice in the fact that the Holy Spirit lives within you. You didn't do that, that's by grace. Rejoice in the fact that you have faith in Christ. You didn't do that, God did that. And we start getting filled up with these amazing things that God has done. Rejoice in the fact that heaven is yours. Rejoice that you're a child of God and that your sins are forgiven. Wow. Yeah, rejoice. So when you start getting filled up with these things that back up why we're rejoicing, it changes your whole attitude. You're not down in despair any longer. You're not discouraged any longer. And you're going to be sure that you're going to get the grace to get through whatever it is that you're going through. Wow. So are you rejoicing yet as you think about these things that are yours? They're yours. They can't be taken away from you. Put no confidence in your own strength. Put no confidence in the flesh, but trust wholly and completely in Jesus for these things. Rejoice in the Lord Jesus. This is what Paul commands us to do. Rejoice in Jesus for your salvation because it's secure in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great news that you give us. And Lord, at times we are looking at so many other things than this amazing grace that we walk in, this covenant of grace in which we stand, this work that you're continuing in us until Christ returns and, and we are in your presence forever and ever and ever, that we are transformed and that we will enjoy you forever. Help us to rejoice in these things, Lord. Help us to own them. Help us to make, see that they are true. We need your help, Lord. Even now we need your grace to do that. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.